0: Epiphany Sunday has been celebrated in the Christian tradition for hundreds and hundreds of years now. In fact, it seems that the Christians started celebrating Epiphany pretty early on, maybe within the first few hundred years of Christian tradition, this this chance to stop. Epiphany, this, this revelation, this moment of coming to realize something, of something shining into your darkness. Epiphany Sunday marks the end of Christmas time. So if you haven't picked up on this over the course of, of the years, in, in church tradition, Christmas isn't one day, it's 12 days. So you'll notice what happens in the world is, is that they kind of, we, we have this long lead up for Christmas, mostly about buying things. And, and then it gets to Christmas Eve, the shops close, you have one day of celebration, and then we start planning for Valentine's Day. It seems to be how it works if you follow the... Um, the commercial calendar. (laughs) But if you follow the church calendar, there's this long lead-up of Advent, and it gets to Christmas, and then we take 12 days of Christmas. So you know the song is 12 days of Christmas? And if you follow that religiously, by the end of Christmas, you have a lot of animals in your house, and possibly a migraine, because there seems to be a lot of musicians, but like out of sync with the normal musicians. I think you have like 11 drummers or something like that, or 22, depending on how you count it. And this song actually isn't about the lead up to Christmas, but it's actually about the the Christmas season, these 12 days. And I just, I want to release you into celebrating a 12 day of Christmas. Resist this temptation to see Christmas as one day. My house, we've been playing Christmas carols for 12 days straight and have overeaten every single day in the 12 days because it's Christmas, right? And and we're just enjoying that sort of celebration of, of, of what God has brought to us. And then at the end of the Christmas season, we get Epiphany, this day that marks, in tradition, it marks the arrival of the three kings, this light that guided them to Jesus. And on one hand, it is the mark of the arrival of the three kings. But on the other hand, The story of Jesus is kind of constant epiphany, if you think about it. There's moment of revelation after moment of revelation. You're going to have a son. You're having a son. Shepherds are going to have great joy. These kings are going to come from from the east. But then Jesus sees baptism. We have this voice from heaven approving of him. Jesus sees transfiguration. We see more epiphany of who Jesus is Jesus' death on the cross is an epiphany if you think about it. This realization of what God has done and is doing for us. The resurrection, another epiphany. Day of Pentecost, another epiphany. So, at one level, we celebrate this notion of epiphany because epiphany is everywhere if you follow Jesus. And so, as we kind of mark it today in the sort of traditional calendar, I wanted to ask you to reflect on a question, perhaps a question that you need to think about beyond just one service. But as we gather in prayer and around the communion table this morning, I'd love for you to ask this question. How is Jesus bringing light into your life right now? And what is that light doing? So how is Jesus bringing light into your life? I'm not gonna ask you to answer that question publicly so you can be as honest as you want in your reflection, but how is Jesus bringing light into your life and what is that doing? With that question in mind, let's go back to the text that Jess read for us just a few moments ago in Matthew chapter two. It says after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Notice that after Jesus was born. If you've kind of learned the Christmas story by watching nativity scenes, you you kind of see Christmas as this sort of menagerie of animals, shepherds, kings, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, angels, a star, all in one stable. And one of the things that happens when you read the Gospels is you realize, wait a minute, this happens over a slightly elongated period. In fact, If you look at the way this story unfolds, if you read all of Matthew chapter two, there seems to be this implication that this particular story, it may happen as long as two years after Jesus is born. We don't know that for sure, but it seems like there's an awareness that Jesus has been around for a little while by the time we get to the end of this story. Now think about that. A few moments ago, I suggested Christmas was a 12-day period, and that sounded controversial, the nativity might be a two-year-long period. And I'm just suggesting that overeating for that period of time might just be more celebration than even Jesus can cope with. So let's stick with 12 days for the moment. But after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, and everybody says, boo, because we know enough about Herod to know that. (laughs) Magi, 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 nobody knows how to say this word. Okay, so just... Say it confidently, and people will believe that that's the right way. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Magi from the east. A little tiny bit of myth-busting right at the start of our teaching today. We often, and I use this language just for ease at the start of the sermon, we talk about the three kings, but the text doesn't say that they were kings. So some texts translate it the three wise men, but the text doesn't actually say that they were men. In fact, the text doesn't actually say that there was three of them. The reason we think there's three of them is that they brought three gifts. But I mean, the gifts are pretty expensive, so it's not impossible they kind of went in together on a few of them and you know maybe you know maybe there was five maybe there was maybe there was ten i don't know somebody was you know grouping the money together and this is what they came up with as their gifts and the problem is they're actually called magi in the biblical text which kind of translates and this might be why we've gone with translations like kings or wise men in the past is because magi could be kind of people involved in the magic industry or more likely astrologers, which you've always been a little uncomfortable with in the church. And just to be clear, if you leave this sermon, and like, David says, I should find out my star sign and govern my life based on that. That is not the point of this sermon, okay? And I'm gonna confidently just assert that for a moment. But these are magi. They're astrologers of some sort watching the stars. No matter how maybe uncomfortable we are, with that. And they've come from the east. And I know that that's an interesting piece for any of us in Alberta, because does anything good come from the east? I mean, just, (laughs) like, you know, let's just, so there's a lot to learn in this particular teaching. The earliest accounts of magi in world history actually are, are in the records of Darius the Great from Babylon. Now, that's quite interesting, because Babylon if you remember the Old Testament stories, is not a friend of Israel. Babylon has caused all sorts of destruction in Israel. In fact, 500 years before this story, Israel was kind of in in the basically rebuilding from the rubble of the Babylonian persecution. And the prophet Isaiah, who we read in our first reading this morning, stood up in the kind of post-Babylonian exile as Israel's still under the kind of rule of Babylon, is trying to rebuild, has been persecuted to almost destruction. Isaiah stood up, and we read it responsively in Isaiah 60, and he imagines a day. Isaiah prophesies of a day when a king will come to Israel, that all the nations will realize is king, and they will bring their gifts to this king. And you remember the last line that you read responsively? we bring gifts of gold and frankincense. And hopefully, at least some of you, some lights went on in your dashboard, and you're like, wait, I know why we're reading this today. <laughs> because this was prophesied, this unbelievable hope in the rubble of destruction and persecution, that kings would come and offer homage in this place of brokenness and rubble. And 500 years later, people come from the East. Some scholars over the years have suggested these are Babylonian astrologers who have come into the place, having been the oppressors, are now here to worship. And they ask this question. They say, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Again, if you've read this story or watched the children's movies, read the storybook Bibles, you often assume that they come to King Herod and say, hey, where's this one who's been born king of the Jews? But the text doesn't say that. It just sort of, they appear in Jerusalem and they're like, hey, so where's this king? Maybe the Magi are expecting that there's going to be a lot of excitement about this when a, when a new king is born. So they're assuming people are going to be talking about it. And it appears that they turn up and like, nobody seems to know. Uh, they ask this question, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? Now think about this. Because this is key for us here today. Foreigners, foreign astrologers, are the first people in Matthew's gospel to confess Jesus in his kingly role. The first people who confess that Jesus is the king of Israel are not Israelites, they're foreigners. Ironically, at Jesus' crucifixion, it is Pilate, another foreigner, who confesses Jesus as king of Israel. There's this sense that something is going on here about this king, that he's king of this place, but maybe he's king of more places than just that. We saw his star, they say. Again, pay attention. We saw his star. They were not looking for Jesus. They were just doing their magi thing in the east, wherever that that is. And they were doing their Magi thing and they saw a star. And now that they have seen this star, they must come and worship. There's a reaction that it requires from them. We saw this star and we have come to worship, they say. We saw it, we weren't looking for it. Maybe it surprised us, maybe it was an epiphany. That they saw this star and they had to respond to it. They're not in Israel, they're not Israelites. They're not doing the sort of jobs that Israel approves of, but they saw the star. I heard somebody say just recently about this text that this text reminds us that there is nowhere that God is not at work. There is nowhere that God is not at work. And that is still true. So this story in chapter two of the gospel shows us that the walls that we previously thought existed aren't there anymore. Anyone can come and worship this king. Now, then we see that Herod hears about this. So somehow, word gets to Herod that there's some some astrologers from the east (laughs) in Jerusalem asking, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? And it says, when Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, If you read the history books about King Herod, you discover that he was, um, how can I say this uh, politely, a bit of a despot, okay? So that's about as polite as I can be on this. Um, And so Herod is not overly happy to hear about a pretender to the throne because Herod, is the king of the Jews. So when the king of the Jews hears that they're looking for someone who has been born king of the Jews, he gets disturbed. Now, if you've ever lived in the presence of a despot, you notice when they get disturbed, everybody gets disturbed, right? Because when they get upset about something, everybody else has to pay the price of it. But these two words that the Magi dropped, and I wonder if, if you noticed them, we're here to see the one born king. See, because Herod is king of the Jews, but he was given that title by the Romans he wasn't born into that role. He didn't have the rights to that role. He was positioned in that role by the oppressors to keep the peace and to do the will of Rome. So you can imagine how superbly popular Herod was. People loved him a lot. Like, not at all. Right? So, so Herod doesn't really have the people on his side. He's basically in position because everybody's scared of the Romans. And when he hears not only that there's another king of the Jews, but he is born king of the Jews. Everybody gets a little jumpy because Herod is jumpy. But the Magi, they want to come to worship. So Magi want to worship and Herod is in fear. Think about that. The same event is happening. Somebody has been born. An epiphany has happened. Some people want to worship. Some people live in fear because epiphany is always an invitation to change. When God reveals something to you, when God breaks into your, your world, when he cuts through the frames of your life and drops something new into your life, you can be like the magi and you can say, wow, there's a new star we must go and worship. Or you can be like Herod and fight the change. Change can be an invitation to follow Jesus and worship him, but it can also this epiphany can cause you to try to hold on to the way of life that you had and to refuse to let go of it. If you read this story all the way through, Herod's response to this situation is to slaughter everyone to and under in Jerusalem. Herod becomes Pharaoh. This Jewish story that every person is taught in, in the land of Israel, that you celebrate Passover every single year, and Herod becomes the one who replicates that story because he wants to hold on to what he has. Herod becomes Pharaoh, and Joseph and Mary and Jesus go to Egypt. The irony of this story for the Jewish reader is immensely strong, that this is all going wrong. Herod should know better than this. But power has this weird hold on us. And when we think we should own something that we don't have, when we think something's taken from us that we didn't want to be taken on from us, We can respond badly. A year ago, in the shadow of Epiphany, we saw one nation invade another nation because one ruler wanted to own what was no longer his. On Epiphany, a year earlier than that, in the U.S., we saw people riot and cause chaos because one person wanted power that they weren't going to have anymore. The irony of that story happening on Epiphany, the very day that this story is being told, shouldn't be lost on us. But it's easy to point fingers at Ukraine and Russia, and it's easy to point fingers at at the situation in the States a year before, but what about us? In our own hearts, there's a resistance to change sometimes. God reveals and opens up places for us to follow. But are we willing to let go? Are we willing to follow? Are we going to let the epiphany guide us? So the text continues. Then Herod called the magi secretly. So he kind of brings them in through the back door because he wants to find out about this. And he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully. Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. I don't think Herod's telling the truth here. I'm gonna put that out to you. <laughs> he's, he's creating a ruse as to why he wants these things to happen. But Notice this, search carefully. Herod says to the Magi. But did you notice as you read the story that they weren't searching? It was an epiphany. (laughs) It came to them and they choose to follow. They have an epiphany that they follow and the following of the star leads them to the place of Jesus. But Herod, the one who is resisting, wants to do things, wants them to do it on their own effort. This reminds me of this form of Christianity that's out there that demands huge effort from us. But the danger of when you use all your own effort is you start to become Herod if you're not careful. Because I fought for this and I earned this, we say, so I must now hold on to it. And that's true in life. We see it all over the place in the commercial industries, in the business world. We hold on to what we think we have a right to because we have earned it. But we also do that with our holiness, too. Many of us grew up within Christian religion that was very legalistic. And and this strange dichotomy happens in our own hearts, where we recognize that legalistic forms of Christianity can do damage to our souls. But at the same time, while recognizing that, we find ourselves resisting the freedom that others might find in Jesus, because we're a little jealous that they seem to have it easier than us. And very often our tension in the church life is those of us who were in legalistic forms kind of accidentally want everybody else to live in that legalism so that we could all have the same war stories. We sometimes want to hold on to the things that Jesus is asking us to let go of. But here's the magi, astrologers from the East, total outsiders, and yet they're now at the front of the line to worship Because this is about seeing a star and just following. It doesn't matter where you see the star from. The text continues, it says, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. They got to do what they set out to do. They got to respond to the epiphany the way they felt that they should. Herod saw fear, the Magi found joy. The Greek text of this piece of uh, the New Testament is fantastic, by the way. Pretty much all the English translations translate it, they were overjoyed or something like that. Literally, the Greek text says that they rejoiced very much with great joy. (laughs) And it's like, it's like they had great joy and they rejoiced greatly about it. And there's something about Matthew in his telling of this story that he wants you to know there's a lot of joy. (laughs) Like they've been on a long journey. They've come from the East. They may not be very popular. They've had to hike their way through into a country that isn't overly friendly, perhaps, to them. They accidentally ended up around some megalomaniac king. And like this story had some risk to it. And now they're here in front of the Christ child and they worship and they're full of joy. Herod, Magi, same story, different responses. Both of them find the same thing. Both of them know the same thing but they respond differently. One in joy, one in fear. And I wonder if we might not recognize the fear that might actually resonate with us sometimes, that that things are changing in the world and there is much to be afraid of. And then there's also much to be afraid of in ourselves. Our own darknesses, our own ways of being sometimes scare us a little bit. There's anxiety, there's confusion, there's troubles. What will 2023 be like? Will it be better than 2022? Or 2021? Or please God, better than 2020? Like, and at what point do we give up hope saying, hopefully this year is better than last year? (laughs) Because change keeps happening, and it's all there to cause us to have fear. But they saw the child, they had great joy and they worshiped him. I heard Chris Green say this just recently, and I love how it frames this moment for us. The only thing, and before you read the rest of this, just hold that idea, the only thing. Because there's a confessional moment in there for you, perhaps for this year, perhaps for your whole life, actually, if you'll hold on to it. You believe this only thing comment. The only thing that will actually address the anxiety of our lives the confusion in our politics, the troubledness in our souls is a vision of the child. This is God nursing and puking in his mother's lap. That's the vision that has to capture us. We saw this star in its rising. We saw the star and we have traveled through land and country unwelcomed to kings who are megalomaniacs to arrive at the house and see a baby. Like it's the mystery of Christmas all over again. This is the king of the Jews? Well, bigger than that, this is God with us. And as we fight and resist that, there's an invitation in an epiphany. If we too can see that this is God in this child, Perhaps we can lose some of our pretensions that makes us think we know what we're doing. Perhaps we can let go of some of our ideas that we're actually in control. Maybe, just maybe, if God is a child, we can find the childlikeness of our own faith as well, to trust God enough to follow a star. It's ridiculous if you think about it. We tell this story so often it sounds familiar. They followed a star and came to Jesus. Like, how do you, hey, guys, see you in a few months. Where are you going? (laughs) We're following that star. Why? To see the king of the Jews. You're not even Jewish. (laughs) Like, why are you doing that? If you think about the story and step back from it, there's so much ridiculousness to this story. And yet, it is in following that star, in letting go of that control, that they find themselves at the edge of the Messiah and the Savior. And then it says this, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Sometimes the way of following God is to just really, really relax and let go. Like go to sleep. (laughs) Like you're not in very much control of your dreams, are you? And yet here in this complete out of control space, the spirit speaks to them and tells them, the king is lying. Don't go back there, it's not safe. Follow God this way. Epiphany is an invitation to us all to see what God is doing, and then hold our hearts in a nimble space so that we can pivot and move to follow God. Epiphany also has a dark invitation to it, an invitation to be like Herod and insist that things must stay the way They have always been. One of these ways has Jesus at the center, and the other way has you at the center. Magi or Herod, Epiphany offers us this invitation. And perhaps an invitation to be quiet enough to hear the Spirit, even in our dreams. To maybe turn down the volume of our lives, speak less and listen more. I say this as somebody who speaks for a living. (laughs) The Spirit, if we listen, will lead us in the way. And one of the ways that we come about doing this is to pray. Prayer forms us and roots us in being the people that can see and follow God like the Magi did. So as we end this Christmas tide this year, move into 2023 full of hope and expectation that God will work if we let him. I wanna invite us to a few moments of silence. The language of God is often in silence. And so, as we sort of wrap up our service today and come to really, at some level, why we're here, I wanted to invite us to silence and to prayer and to communion.